Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Construction Approach to Animal Welfare and Training Podcast. We are your host. I am Masa. Hi, everybody, and I'm Sean. We hope that you are cuddled up with your animal companions and ready for this exciting episode. We are very excited to announce that we just launched a new series of online group classes. The first one is called Introduction to the Science of Behavior, Part One, which starts on September 25th. So, what does it mean to look at behavior from a perspective of natural science? What are the basics of the science of behavior? What skills do we need to have to analyze the relations between behavior and environmental events? In this group class, we will explore the fundamentals of behavior science by examining Sean and Masa's behavior. This four-week group class will introduce the basics of the natural science of behavior, B of Fx under C, to understand functional relations between behavior and its environment. You will learn each variable in B of Fx under C and how to think about various situations through Sean and Masa's lens. Cout is a non-profit organization, and all of the profits from this group class will support free programs for individuals and shelters in need of behavioral support. In addition, for every third registration of this group class, Cout can offer one free spot for someone in need. If you require training and are going through difficult times due to our donations, we have one free spot in this group class. So contact us through our website, where you can find information on obtaining a free spot. In today's episode, we will listen to the part two of our interview with Barbara Heinrich. In our last episode, we left off with Barbara talking with us a little bit about the importance of being specific about what we're doing in any given procedure, whether we are using positive or negative reinforcement. And in today's episode, we are going to pick up where Barbara is starting to share with us the things that she does when doing constructional aggression treatment in zoos to help overcome obstacles and challenges that might be presented in the places that she's doing her work. So let's begin. But um, you know, one other point that I wanted to bring up to what you were talking about with cat is you use a word with it that. I absolutely love. I've never heard anyone else use this word when describing procedures or anything to do with cat. And I love that you talk about it being benign, about making sure our procedures are benign. And when delivering a negative reinforcement stimulus, when controlling it, you know, to help our our animals figure out how to control it for themselves. What are some of the things that you do to help make it benign? And I know that in the zoo. You might be faced with a situation like many of us that do work in animal shelters are faced with. You, it may not always be logistically possible to completely remove the stimulus, or you know, there, there's all sorts of yeah, space and issues. Yeah. yeah, space issue like the setup that you mentioned in the presentation. It's very hard to even see the animals, right? Because they are far away. Yeah. And, and so, what are some of these things that you do to to help with that and keep that stimuli as benign as possible? Yes, it is definitely not like a situation with a dog where maybe you can bring it to a big room and have all your setup exactly how you want. You know, we're we definitely have some challenges. So, you know, again, you go back to 
sort of the basics of your what you're trying to isolate you know it doesn't and so it, it may not always be perfect so you know we might be using cameras or more people to help us um but you always go back to, well, what's important? You know, we need to get that aversive stimulus as far enough away as possible so that the animal can give us calm and relaxed body language, right? Mm-hmm. So that's important. So how do we do that? So that has to happen. So whatever that takes, you know, I mean, I've been in situations where I remember, um, you know, we couldn't do this inside. So we had to go, you know, outside with this tiger that had a response to a particular individual, but that tiger could still detect that individual, even though we were outside and there were guests outside, it could detect that person. So we had that person go way, way far down the, the pathway and, and, uh, you know, and we would have that person approach and we would just have somebody else watching the tiger and say, you know, stop, you know, she can see you. And, and we, we would have that person that was close enough that the tiger would tolerate in her vicinity. Let us know that, look, she just responded. You know, we saw her kind of change body language and and notice you. And so now you need to stop. Okay. Now she's relaxed, move away. Um, so we might do things like that. Um, and so we might use a second person. We also did things like with a ocelot, um, the, the way that the setup was, there was just no way that we could have visual with her, but we could hear her vocalizations. And so we used her vocalizations as the thing that we could pay attention to as opposed to her physical movements and body language. And so if... Um, <clears throat> If she was vocalizing, we wouldn't approach, but uh, um, so we, so I'm trying to get it, get it right here. So I think it was, she was, this is the hard part, right? Getting what is calm? What is, oh yeah. So she wasn't vocalizing. So we approached a little bit. She vocalized. So we stopped. And the minute she stopped vocalizing, we removed ourselves. So that's, that was how we worked on hers until we got, until we were in line of sight because she was hiding in a crate. Wow. And so she, we couldn't have visual with her. And so we weren't in sight until, you know, we were in front of the crate, just the way the setup was there. Um, yeah. So there's little things like that yet. You have to kind of work out. Um, we can use cameras, but sometimes the, the visibility on the camera, the, the, you know, the pixelation makes it so that it's not good enough. Um, and then sometimes what I do, um, like working with herds and flocks, there's some fine tuning there that can really help you. A lot of it has to do with natural history as a species. But what I do a lot is I don't, I don't try to trigger any kind of response at all. So I'll approach and retreat without any, any response, because if you trigger any kind of response, it's potential to trigger the whole herd or flock and you lose, you get nothing that you can reinforce. So what I tend to think about is there are responses happening. You, you know, you know, private events that I can't observe. So I'm just going to assume that that's happening. And, um, and so I'm going to approach and retreat as long as everybody's calm and relaxed. And, and so that there's still reinforceable behavior there. It's just maybe that I cannot see something overt that I'm reinforcing, but there's covert stuff going on. So I'll work with that. And then there may be animals that, that will, unfortunately, I I call it tipping (laughs) that I tip a little bit, you know, that uh, maybe I approach and somebody does have a bit of a response 
But because I'm working with a herd or a flock, I'm not going to be able to, you know, who am I going to pick to reinforce is the, you know, whose behavior am I going to pick to reinforce? And that becomes a challenge. So what I do is, is I just pick anybody, whoever gives me something that I can reinforce, I'm going to reinforce. And what starts to happen with these herds and these flocks is they start learning by watching the others. So the one that I reinforce that whose behavior I was able to negatively reinforce, that one starts learning. And what, and if I'm good enough, you know, you have to be careful. You can't, you, you still have to be really careful about not pushing too much. Um, the others start watching that one and pretty soon everybody starts getting on board and you start getting more and more animals that are, are, learning to follow the ones that are giving you the desired responses. And by doing that, I've had some really good luck with a lot of wild caught herds of hoofstock, um, uh, especially uh, some African species that I've worked with. And, um, and what's really cool, I got this report from, from uh, the team that I worked with over in um, United Arab Emirates. They, uh, one of my most challenging ones was a herd of hemsbach. And I did one session with them and I was able to get some, you know, a bunch of them walking towards me, but still at quite a distance. And now the latest report is that they're all um, able to be in the stable, in the stalls with people next to them, which is really, really cool. So wow, goosebumps, goosebumps. Wow. That's very awesome. So I have to imagine that when applying the constructional aggression treatment in a zoological setting that you encounter a lot of different looking situations and I'm sure that you end up having to modify your approach depending on those various situations that, you know, any given animal might be getting exposed to. And in a zoo, I'm sure that, you know, there could be countless different situations and things in the environment that, you know, might be upsetting the animal or might be that aversive component. So can you share with us a little bit about how you address these complicated situations? Well, I think, you know, part of the question, though, is that what's the aversive stimulus? So, you know, I think we're one of the things with um, the constructional approach is that so far, people have been rather accustomed to, excuse me, applying it with humans being the aversive stimulus. But there's a lot of things that we use this for. I mean, in my community, you know, there's a lot of things that can be an aversive stimulus. So we're training animals to participate in medical care a lot. And so there's a lot of instruments that create fear responses with our animals in the zoological community. And that may have to do with prior prior history, you know, because maybe in the past, you know, um, a medical situation came up and the animal wasn't yet trained. And so they have prior experience with that, that object. And so we may be using this more to address uh, a relationship with an object versus a human. And, um, and so for me, you know, we've used it for objects, you know, that, that's some of the things that I've done just practicing with my own animals. Um, I was, you know, I wanted to show for the parrot community that, you know, we can use the same thing to teach a bird to interact with nail clippers or, you know, here, I'm going to use an object my animals never targeted to before that I would never expect her to. She's going to show fear response to this because it's huge giant target. And, you know, I did a little baseline and then showed, okay, let's see how fast we can get her to 
think about targeting to this, starting with negative reinforcement and then transitioning to positive reinforcement and, and showing that it's a lot faster than trying to do this thing where I'm going to lure her over here with food and having her kind of be like, oh, that's scary. I don't want to, but I want your food. You know, what we were talking about earlier. Um and, you know, think, and if you want to think about, you know, domestic animals like dogs who have fear responses to nail clippers or, you know, sticking your fingers in their ears or whatever, you know, those are all practical applications that people might have with their own companion animals. But, but, you know, even in the zoo community, we have situations where maybe an animal, you know, shows discomfort about certain permanent structures in, in an area that they might have to walk by or, or maybe going into a chute um, for medical behaviors. These are all conditions in which we may consider this procedure. So it's not always just about, about um, human as an aversive stimulus. So I think there's lots of application that maybe people need to, you know, the way that I think about it, and I have these conversations with some of my colleagues in the zoo community a lot is just think about this. Whenever you see an animal showing a fear response or aggressive response, you know, ask yourself, is there an aversive stimulus involved here? And that might be a moment for you to think about, maybe this is a time for me to think about using this procedure. You know, we always have to go back to, you know, what's the function here? We don't just automatically assume all, all aggressive behavior and all fear responses is about, about, you know, providing distance, but, but, you know, those are good places to start. Barbara, I really love what you said. And I agree that we don't want to be assuming what's going on. We want to be looking at the existing contingencies that the animal is experiencing and that our training is based on the function. Yeah, and that even gets to, you know, the point that Barbara was making at the end of our last episode about ensuring that all of our approaches are actually you know, based on function, actually looking at the animal, their behavior, and the environment that's surrounding that whole thing. And, um, you know, not just making a selection based on some kind of, you know, assumption of what the animal needs. But, um, you know, thinking about this journey that you've been on through animal training, you've done work in some of the most amazing places with some of the most amazing animals, achieving some amazing outcomes. And I was just wondering, you know, since you've learned about the constructional approach, what would you say has been like the biggest benefit for your applications and designing training programs that help the animals that you serve? I think the biggest benefits for me is that it really helped me think about focusing on function-based. Again, I think I, I already did that, but it really brought that to light again and that it's really important to think about function-based interventions. And it, it helped me to start also thinking about that, that idea of trying to use counter conditioning could be coercive and that maybe going to this constructional approach was a much more non-coercive approach to addressing these situations where animals were, were responding to aversive um, stimuli. And I'd never really thought about that stimulus picture so much before, but, but when I really started thinking about, cause I really would use that other approach quite a bit where I was like, Oh, you know, here's some food and, you know, try to interact with this thing. 
And I know you're a little nervous, but you know, we'll do this in little tiny baby steps and then you'll be comfortable with it. And I use that approach a lot and I've really transitioned more to this. I'm going to give you distance and, and, and we'll transition to positive reinforcement once you're much more comfortable. And, and now I'm feeling a lot better about that approach. And as opposed to kind of luring the animal in and, and calling it counter conditioning and desensitization. Although as, um, Jesus really pointed out, it's much more of a shaping procedure. And I really do agree with him on that. So I really feel like that's been very enlightening to me. So all of this, which um, I think I mentioned earlier, really led me to think much more deeply about what's really going on here. And, and it also really made me feel that I need to learn more about the behavior science. And it led me to go back to grad school during the pandemic because I had the time because it wasn't on the road. And, um, and, and I think one of the great things about the art and science of animal training conference is that it does expose us to so many behavior scientists and, um, and gives us really great opportunities to learn more. And it, and it just reminded me that, you know, I've been really fortunate to have wonderful opportunities to train lots of animals and to, you know, have lots of opportunities for, with practical application. Uh, I've always been interested in behavior science and tried to, you know, study on my own, but I felt like, you know, here's a good opportunity for me to keep filling in these gaps about the behavior science and get a better, better understanding of that, because that's what I kept learning in these little bits and pieces, talking to everybody at the conferences that, you know, Hey, maybe that's not counter conditioning and desensitization. Maybe that's really just shaping and, and, and maybe it's better to use the constructional approach than it is to try and do this, you know, little tiny shaping thing. So I think what really in a very roundabout way, what, resulted from learning about the constructional approach is that I discovered there's just a whole better way for me to help animals learn and improve animal welfare and for me to apply what I know about animal training. So, you know, here I am 30 years in as a person who's been training in the zoological community. And what I feel like I got out of it is that I can keep doing it better by changing and learning and being receptive to these things instead of saying, no, 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 negative reinforcement's bad. You know, it's good to be open and listen and, you know, and not be stuck in your ways just because that's what the community you are, you know, raised in told you. And um, that's the most important thing is you got to be open. That's a wonderful message. That absolutely is. And, and, you know, piggybacking off of that question, um, what do you think some of the biggest benefits have been for the animals that you work with applying the Mm. constructional approach? Gosh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love that we are giving the exam, these animals exactly what it is they want. You know, they want that aversive stimulus to go away. We're giving them distance, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not delaying that animal to the desired consequence. And, and furthermore, you know, we're getting great behavior out of these animals. We're getting, you know, what we need from the animal. So whether that's calm body language and, and, you know, think about that, think about that. Like, you know, if we're talking about an aggressive big cat, think about that animal that's had to use aggressive behavior over and over and over again to communicate, you know, please make that go away and, and think about that welfare for that animal and that, 
you know, what might be happening in those situations is that people just habituate to that and just go, oh, that's just the way the animal is, you know, it's just an aggressive cat or whatever, when really it's just a learned response that has maybe been successful or maybe not, you know, maybe because it's, you know, it's just, unfortunately, people haven't responded to it, but, but um, just think about how much better it is for everybody for that cat and the people there, <clears throat> if the animal learns, oh, I can relax and I can get what I want as well. And then the people get to relax and they get to feel like, you know what, I've made this, I made it so that this cat gets to relax finally, or it's not scared anymore. I mean, I know all the people that I work with care deeply about animals and it's not that they don't want those animals to feel relaxed and comfortable. It's just about giving them the tools that they are able to accomplish this. And so, so here I am now being able to be in a position where I'm better able to do that for them. And that's the way that I feel about it is like, wow, finally, you know, I have a better, a better tool to help the people that I want to help and to help the animals that they care about and I care about as well. So, you know, that's, that's the really the best gift of it all. Thank you so much for that, Barbara. That was beautiful. But um, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have uh, for today's show. But thank you so much for coming on today. It was so amazing and fun to have you on here. And I know that everyone out there is going to absolutely love the stories and the information that you shared with us. Thank you again for having me. It's been great. And I'm sure we'll have to do this again sometime because obviously we have so much to talk about. We sure exactly. do. <laughs> And this marks the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you all enjoy learning a little bit more about the constructional approach through Barbara's amazing stories applying the constructional aggression treatment in zoological settings. If you're interested in learning more about Barbara's work, you can go to her website at animaltrainingfundamentals.com. We will put our affiliate link in the description below. There you can become a member of her virtual learning program and learn about her work using constructional approach in many different zoos. If you haven't had an opportunity to register for the video on demand cow conference presentations, you can still register until September 30th and access them until October 31st. Please visit our website at cow.com forward slash 2021 conference. To register for the amazing introduction to the science of behavior class we mentioned at the start of the show, remember to visit cout.com to register. And due to some recent donations, if you happen to find yourself in a tough position, you can also apply for support to join the class for free. If you like our show, please subscribe to our podcast or share it with your friend. Feel free to get more information or reach out to us on our website, cout.com, or our Facebook page, Constructional Approach to Animal Welfare and Training, Instagram at NPO underbar C-A-A-W-T, or you can always email us at C-A-A-W-T contact at gmail.com. Thank you so much today. We are your host. I am Masa. And I am Sean. Have a wonderful day with your amazing animal companions. <laughs>